you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 5, verse 11, going all the way to chapter 6, verse 12. That's simply because, as one commentary put it, and I agree that the chapter break at chapter 6 is neither warranted nor necessary. The text tells us where the main ideas start and end, and chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12 is one section. And so I want to cover that entire train of thought this morning as we look at the peril of spiritual immaturity. I remember one Thursday afternoon during seminary, I walked into the bookstore and I was a little bit starstruck because standing there perusing the featured book section was the preacher who I had just heard preach in chapel a few hours before, and I knew it right away because I had looked forward to that day and to that chapel service uh, for many weeks, eager to hear this man preach. And so I was delighted to meet him and get to tell him briefly that his ministry had impacted me and benefited my life. That was around 2009, and this young pastor who I had met hadn't been in ministry very long. His rise to prominence started in 1997 when at the age of 23, he published a book on dating and relationships that sold 1.2 million copies. And by 2004, he was the pastor of a megachurch at the age of 30. But that was only until 2015 when a series of announcements and developments started to unravel First, he resigned from his church to seek more theological education. As he put it, he had done things backwards and had gone into ministry without the proper theological training. And so he, uh, so he supposedly was leaving his ministry to seek that theological education. And then in 2016, he apologized for his best-selling book and the negative effects that it supposedly had and directed his publisher to stop printing it. But then in 2019 came two bombshell social media posts in which first he announced his divorce and then finally a a second one in which he stated that he no longer considered himself to be a Christian. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Joshua Harris. It's a tragic story and it's one that we've seen play out far too often in recent years. Prominent Christian leaders, pastors, artists, leaving behind the faith that they once professed. And of course, we're shocked by this kind of news. We're just as shocked when it happens to famous Christians, but also when it happens to people who are known to us, friends, family members who once sat with us in these same pews. And it ought to trouble us, but we don't need to look any farther than Jesus himself who taught us in the parable of the four soils in Matthew 13 that there will be those who show signs of life. And the New Testament even makes clear that some of those would even rise to prominence and rise to influence in the church, but they will eventually fall away. So this morning, as we consider the peril of spiritual immaturity, we see from the text of Hebrews and we see from these tragic anecdotes that spiritual immaturity is not a matter of 
intellectual ability or theological depth, nor is it a matter of position or status in the church. We see that spiritual immaturity is most of all a matter of putting into practice what we have learned. It's a matter of actually believing what we have learned and holding our convictions close so that they actually affect how we think and how we live, that we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in such a way that we are continuously being changed and formed into his likeness. And even though we see that spiritual infants can deceptively appear to be mature in the faith and may even believe themselves to be mature, the text tells us that those who are spiritual infants cannot and will not remain where they are. They will either go forward into maturity or they will fall away and be destroyed forever. And that truth underlines the seriousness and the urgency of the warning that we have before us in this text. So let's look at it together and read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, so it may differ slightly from what you have, but I I assure you the translations are all solid and the meaning is the same. We have a great deal to say about this and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation. Again, you need milk and not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it And that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed. And at the end, will be burned. Even though we are speaking in this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. So this morning I have four points. I have four things I want us to see here. First is the cause of immaturity. The cause of immaturity we see in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. The text tells us right away in verse 11 that the cause of spiritual immaturity is simply laziness. Some translations say sluggish. Some might say dull of hearing. But the idea is simply laziness, which is why I like this translation and why I'm using it this morning. Because the idea is simply that the people have become lazy in their attention to the word and to their attention to their spiritual growth and their discipleship. 
modern psychology has attempted to eliminate the idea of laziness. Shouldn't be surprised by anything modern psychology tries to do these days, but indeed they have tried to eliminate laziness and explain it away in terms of personal and emotional fulfillment. One psychologist says, consider the radical proposition that there is no such thing as laziness. What we call laziness is simply people's very legitimate objection to being shamed into doing what they don't want to do. Another one recently wrote a book called Laziness Doesn't Exist, which I wonder if there should be a a plagiarism investigation into this previous one because the first quote was from several years ago and this book just came out a couple of years ago. Um, So I'm wondering if there's a little bit of borrowing of this idea here, but the the book is called Laziness Doesn't Exist. And from an article about it that I read, it says, uh, Price says the idea of laziness has been effectively and expertly wielded to make people feel unproductive and unworthy. In other words, we're lazy because we're just not doing what fulfills us. We're not doing what makes us feel like we're being productive. Of course, the Bible, in its general teaching from cover to cover, could not be more opposed to this ridiculous modern thought. We won't do an exhaustive uh, search of the Bible on laziness, but just look at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes alone. And not, not, just, not just Proverbs, but only a couple of verses in Proverbs. There are, there are dozens more. Proverbs 21, 25, a slacker's craving will kill him because his hands refuse to work. Proverbs 10, verse 4, idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18, because of laziness, the roof caves in, and because of negligent hands, the house leaks. Obviously, laziness exists. Obviously, it is a temptation in our weak and sinful nature to be lazy, and it's something that plagues all of us from time to time. But specifically looking at the scope of laziness as it's being described by the author of Hebrews in this text, we see a few things about this spiritual laziness that he's addressing. First of all, he's saying that laziness prevents spiritual growth, which results in spiritual immaturity. Healthy things grow. To remain in infancy would mean something is not functioning properly. There's a disease that's preventing the natural and steady growth. He uses that analogy well, the metaphor of infants versus mature people who feed on milk and not solid food. Infants only feed on milk for a short time. And they need that milk to grow properly. Laziness prevents that spiritual growth, which then results in spiritual immaturity. Healthy things grow, and to remain in infancy would mean that something is not right. Secondly, I think that we can see that we voluntarily stagnate in our spiritual growth when we realize that going deeper would require us to make changes that we don't want to make. Quite contrary to the modern psychological view, laziness is not refusing to do things that that don't fulfill me or failing to find the thing that doesn't fulfill me. Laziness is refusing to do the things that I need to do that I just don't want to do. See, in the original context, the audience of this book of Hebrews had left behind their Jewish religion and their rituals and their religiosity but some of them had not left it behind completely. And they had heard enough teaching 
that they realize that to go further into their Christian faith, to continue to develop into spiritual maturity, to more fully apply these Christian doctrines that they were learning would mean that they would have to completely sever all of their ties to their former identity, to their former religion, and they didn't want to do that. Some of them were simply holding on to that past identity. Some of them were afraid because going further into the identity of being a Christian would mean volunteering themselves for more persecution and being more targeted by the culture that was coming after them in their Christian religion. But either way, what that created in them was fear, which made them lazy. See, at its root, laziness comes from fear of putting our faith into practice and what that will cost us. And so I look and I've learned these things and I see what's next and I say, well, if I'm honest with myself, if I, if I really dig into that truth and that doctrine and I really start applying that to my life, that's going to be difficult. I'm going to have to make some changes that's going to uproot the status quo of things that I've been used to. And I don't want to pay that price. So the cause of immaturity comes from laziness. That's what he's addressing here at the beginning. And then at the end, he brings that same word back up to kind of bookend this passage to say, some of you are lazy. And at the end, he says, therefore, don't be lazy. Because why? He explains in the middle why. Because laziness leads to immaturity. Number two, we see the symptoms of this immaturity. So in order to properly identify spiritual maturity, he gives us a description of what this looks like. One of my favorite uh, TV shows, especially one of my favorite medical dramas, probably my favorite medical drama, one of my favorite dramas, period, is House MD. Some of you have probably seen the show. House is a brilliant uh, diagnostician, and so his only job is to diagnose things that other doctors can't figure out what it is. Uh, but what's interesting is the first thing that Dr. House always does when he's investigating this new case is he writes down all the symptoms. And sometimes it even takes an interesting and humorous turn when he's not in his hospital office with a whiteboard and he has to use other things. And he still has this fixation that he has to write down the things to kind of flesh it out and get a list of these symptoms, right? So there's one episode where he's stuck on an airplane across the uh, ocean. And so he takes a, a magic marker on the, the video screen of the, in front of the airplane uh, cabin and starts writing on the, on the projection screen uh, instead of a whiteboard so he can see his list of symptoms. And, and there's another one where he's in an airport and he takes someone's lipstick and starts writing the symptoms on the drywall, uh, on the wall, so he can see visually what all the symptoms are. The first step in diagnosing this, any disease in his process, he's got to write down the symptoms. He's got to find out what the symptoms are. And indeed, that's the first step in any doctor's approach to treating illness or diagnosing illness is we have to see what these symptoms are. And so the text gives us some symptoms, some four, four symptoms here to recognize spiritual maturity. Beginning in verse 13, chapter 5, it says, Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about right righteousness. Some other translations say that they're unskilled uh, in the word of righteousness or unskilled with the message about righteousness or not acquainted with the message of righteousness. And I want to stop here for a second before we get into my list of symptoms and just comment on this, this phrase, uh, because I want to clarify something. When it says inexperienced or not acquainted with the message or the teaching about righteousness, 
It's not talking about younger people. Being a Christian for a lot of years doesn't automatically qualify you as mature. Musicians have a saying, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. I was playing in a, in a, a rehearsal, uh, playing French horn one time, and there was a, an uncommon uh, type of notation that was, that was there, but I recognized it, and I thought I knew how to play it, and so when it came up, I played it, and I was way off from the rest of the section. And I was a little bit confused, and I said it was the first time, you know, going through it, maybe something was weird, and so it came up again, and I played it again, and again, I was way off, and I was very confidently way off. And finally, it happened a third time, and I was getting a little frustrated because something wasn't right, and I leaned forward, and I looked down at the first chair horn player, and I said, what's going on with this? Isn't that supposed to go before the beat? And he said, actually, no, when it's written this way, it goes before the beat, but the way it's written here, it goes on the beat. And he was right, and everybody else was playing it right, and here I was with all of my experience and all of my confidence getting it very confidently wrong. And I could have continued on playing it wrong, thinking I was right, and I could have spent hours practicing it the way that I thought was right, but I would have been practicing it wrong and learning it wrong. The same thing is true of our spiritual maturity. The years and the time spent don't just automatically count if we're unskilled in the message, if we're not humbly and constantly learning and growing. Practice alone doesn't make perfect if we're practicing the wrong things or even simply reinforcing our misunderstandings or reinforcing our incomplete understandings. Okay, so that clarified. In the text, the author goes on to essentially describe the difference between maturity and immaturity. And so to help us understand and recognize what he's talking about, Uh, we're going to look at a contrast here between the mature believer, the immature believer coming from this text. So we start in verse 14 where he says, solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. The first symptom of maturity is that they're disciplined in godliness. Some translations say that they have been trained by constant practice. And so, Conversely, we would see that the immature person is inconsistent. The immature person doesn't simply slip up from time to time. Rather, he is disinterested in diligently applying the word of God to his life. Rather than being disciplined in godliness, rather than having his senses trained by constant practice in the word, the immature person just kind of takes it at the surface level. Disinterested in diligently applying the word of God to his life. Also, it says that he is trained to distinguish between good and evil in verse 14. The mature person is discerning. The mature person is discerning. He recognizes true doctrine and false doctrine. He recognizes false teaching. He recognizes poor application of the word. But the immature person is naive. The immature person is easily swayed by false doctrine or by questionable ideas or by explaining away the meaning of the text so that we don't have to really take it seriously. But the mature person is discerning. Going into chapter six, it says, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. The third thing is that the mature person is responsive to the Holy Spirit. 
The mature person is responsive to the Holy Spirit. This repentance from dead works to have faith in God is simply the response to the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. So when we're saved, when a soul is brought back from spiritual death to life, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and now we have the Spirit in order to respond to the Word. The Spirit of God responding to the Word of God in a person's life. The person is responsive to that work of the Holy Spirit when the Word is working on you. But the immature person is callous. The immature person is self-assured and proud. The immature person does not actively seek to examine himself against the standard of Scripture. He's not mindful of his need for discipleship and his need for growth. Finally, in the next few verses, we see that the mature person is established in foundational doctrines. We don't really need to unpack this list that he makes here, but he's sort of rhetorically making a point. He says, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. These are foundational doctrines that the people in his audience had already been taught. He's recalling for them the things that they've already understood, that they already are supposed to have understood, and saying, we don't need to go back and revisit these things because mature people should be established in the foundational doctrines. But the immature person is not. He is unstable and he is unteachable. Because he hasn't mastered the fundamentals of the faith, the immature person is then unable to build upon them. So we see the cause of immaturity. We see these symptoms of immaturity. Most importantly, we see the prognosis of immaturity. The word prognosis is a medical term. It simply means the likely or expected development of a disease. And the text here is clear that the likely or expected development, rather the certain development of spiritual immaturity, is apostasy. Those who claim to identify as believers yet remain in spiritual infancy will fall away, demonstrating that their salvation was never genuine. The Bible is very clear that you cannot lose your salvation, but it is also clear that you can have false assurance and that churches can be filled with false converts. And so we have this very stern warning here. And so who is that warning for? I think the warning is really supposed to be heard by two specific groups, which really includes everybody eventually. But first, it is to the lazy and the immature to tell them exactly what it says, that if they continue in their laziness, if they continue in their immaturity, that their salvation is not genuine. That their salvation is not genuine. Laziness and spiritual immaturity is indicative of a false conversion. Secondly, the warning is for all of us, for the entire church, for the church collectively, for the church as a body, that we would not give lazy and immature people false assurance. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Nothing is more cruel than for the church to lead people to believe that they are in Christ and assure them of eternal salvation when in fact they are outside of Christ and headed for eternal punishment in hell. 
The church is the body and the institution to whom Christ gave the authority to identify and declare the spiritual realities of the salvation of individuals through the practicing of church membership and church discipline. We collectively as the church have the authority and the responsibility to guard the integrity of the gospel. And that means that we have a responsibility in how we preach the gospel and how we call people to respond to the gospel. So just to clarify myself quickly, we as the church, as an institution, have the authority to declare spiritual realities. This is what is meant in Matthew 18 when Jesus is teaching about church discipline. And I want to put, I can put one of these verses on Pastor Scott's list of it doesn't mean what you think it means series that he's going to preach one day, I think. But what he says, if your brother sins against you and you rebuke him in private, he listens to you, you've won your brother. And if you won't listen, take one or two brothers with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered in my name. I am there among them. He's not talking about if you and your buddy are on your boat on Sunday morning that Jesus is there with you. He's talking about the authority of the church having the ability to declare spiritual realities when we observe people who are living in unrepentant sin. Okay, that's what I mean by that. That's what I'm referring to, the authority that the church has. We see it over and over again in the New Testament that we practice church membership and church discipline in order to give clarity to this very issue that's before us in this Hebrews text today, that we have the authority and the responsibility to guard the integrity of the gospel by not giving false assurance to people who do not display the fruit of repentance. And conversely, positively, to give certain hope and assurance to those who in fact have repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ. But we have a responsibility in how we preach the gospel and how we call people to respond to the gospel. I think Paul Washer says it best when he says this, nowhere, nowhere does Jesus Christ or any of the apostles preach the gospel and then afterwards cry out, who wants to receive Jesus? Lift up your hand and pray this prayer. Instead, they command all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin and believe the gospel, to cast themselves upon the gospel, to cut themselves away from every hope in any good work and throw themselves only upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. If the foundation and basis of your assurance of your salvation is a decision and not the person of Jesus Christ, do you see how dangerous this is? And he goes on to say, it's blasphemy and it's idolatry. Friends, hear me this morning. Nothing could be more cruel than for us as a church to tell people the exact opposite of what the Bible says, to tell people who trust in themselves rather than Christ. You're okay. 
you're saved, you're surely going to heaven when you die. The Bible tells us plainly, if we look at a person's life and if they haven't completely surrendered their lives to Christ, if they're inconsistent in their walk, if they're naively carried away and influenced by false teachings, if they're unresponsive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the word, we can have no confidence in their regeneration and we have no basis for assuring them, yep, you're a Christian, simply because they made a decision or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. Nothing could be more cruel. Yet this is exactly what we have done for decades, if not for centuries now, by abandoning the biblical gospel, which is a call to lifelong repentance, and instead preached a gospel of decisionism. By abandoning the things that please God, the biblical doctrines of the church and church membership and church discipline, and instead we've chased after the approval of man by simply trying to see how many people we can get into these pews and how many dollars we can collect into our offering plates. This warning is life and death. This warning is about heaven and hell. It's about either confidently living in the hope of eternal salvation or facing the terror of eternal punishment in hell. The author of Hebrews, he wants his audience to understand and the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that this is serious, that this is urgent. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't end on that note. Why? Because the promise and the faithfulness of God is greater even than the reality of eternity without Christ. He closes in chapter six, verses nine through 12 with the promise of earnest faith, the promise of earnest faith. The passage contains a serious and a very stern warning, but ultimately the author's purpose is to encourage the saints and reassure them them of the certainty of their salvation. He gives eight reasons, starting and ending, bookended once again with the character of God himself. He begins with God's character. He says he is just. God is just. He will not be unjust to overlook your work and your love that you've demonstrated for his name. God is just, and so you can trust God in his promise of salvation. Number two, he says their work, which goes along with number five, which is their diligence. And I'll address that in a minute. Number three, the love for his name, the genuineness of their faith is marked by their love for God, which gets displayed outwardly by all these other attributes. Their love for God is demonstrated by their actions, by what they do in obedience to the message of righteousness that we've heard about already. Number four, it says their service to one another. And this will come up again in chapter 10. I think the author of Hebrews is foreshadowing himself a little bit. When he gets into chapter 10, he talks about the necessity of the church and not neglecting to meet together, but the necessity of the fellowship of the saints to hold us together, to maintain us on that spiritual journey of maturity. Uh, And so he says that your service to one another and your fellowship in the saints is a mark of the certainty of your salvation. Number five, he says their diligence. Again, that goes along with their work that he mentioned earlier. He says, diligence in discipleship. Listen to me. Diligence in discipleship is not the same as trying to earn your salvation. And at the same time, resting in our assurance is not the same as complacency and indifference to our spiritual growth. We can, we can err on either side. 
Diligence in our discipleship is not the same thing as trying to earn our salvation by works, and at the same time, resting in our confidence of our salvation is not the same thing as complacency and indifference to our discipleship. He's reassuring them, we are certain of better things. We are confident of the things for you that pertain to your salvation, but that doesn't mean that you can cease in your diligence and your earnestness in your faith. It doesn't mean that you can cease in your work to loving and serving the saints around you. Six, he says their faith, they hold on to their convictions. He says, we desire for you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith. Faith, confidence, holding on to their convictions that what God has said is true and that God is faithful to do that. Their perseverance, that they suffer through hardships and persecution for the sake of those convictions that they hold on to so closely. And then finally, he ends it again with the character of God and says, this is not dependent on you. I started out by saying that it's dependent on God because God is just. And at the end, he ends it by saying it depends on God because he is faithful to keep his promises. The good news to everyone is that conviction over our sins and our failures is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Conviction leads us to humility, which leads us to confession of our sin, which leads us to repentance and hopefully a continued life of repentance that leads to lasting change. And we understand the forgiveness that we have in Christ, which leads to that confidence and that rest and that assurance. So listen to me, if you're feeling convicted this morning, perhaps you haven't taken your spiritual maturity as seriously as you should, that you've been too casual in your commitment to the church, or you haven't been regularly asking the Lord how you can grow and change and put into practice the word that you've learned and the word that you've heard. Don't be afraid. Be thankful that God in his mercy is showing you your sin because ultimately we can have confidence that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and we rest in the confidence that we have a great high priest and a perfect mediator in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, despite the way that your word pierces our hearts and comes at our, our conscience, in a convicting and sometimes uncomfortable way. Despite that, Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful that you don't leave us to ourselves and that you don't leave us in our sin and in our infancy and in our folly and our laziness, but you reach out and call us to convict us of those things, to make us aware of it so that we would put it aside and put it off and put on faithfulness and put on diligence and put on uh, pursuing you and your word. Father, that we would put off neglecting meeting together and put on faithfulness to this community of the saints, to this fellowship of your people. And Father, we're thankful most of all that we don't come to this conversation, we don't come to this confrontation of our sins and our failures, resting in ourselves and justifying ourselves, but we do so covered by the blood of Christ. And so we know that even though you would wreck our lives, 
and call us to radical changes and radical obedience. We don't have to pursue that in our own strength. We don't have to trust in ourselves because Christ has already been perfectly obedient on our behalf. We simply give ourselves over to the power of your spirit living in us and that the power to live in the ways that please you ultimately comes from you. So God, I pray that we would be convicted this morning. I pray that those who have professed Christ and have stalled in their spiritual growth would be stirred to diligence and earnestness and eagerness to read your word, to hear it taught soundly and to, to trust in a sound doctrine and to continue to grow in their knowledge and their obedience in godliness. Father, I pray that those who, who do meet this list of spiritual maturity, who do see these attributes lived out in their lives, that they would continue on in faithfulness, that they would not ever hit a place of stagnation or, 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 or stalling, that they would continue to do the faithful work of pursuing your word and becoming disciples as their lives go on, regardless of their age, regardless of how far they think they've come, that we would always recognize there's more to learn, there's more to know, there's more uh, obedience to be lived out, there's more faithfulness to be given. And Father, I pray for every soul in this room that has not been reborn by the power of your Spirit, who has not confessed their sin and put their faith in Christ, who has not hidden themselves in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, by believing that he has done that for them and by repenting of their sin once and for all. Father, I pray that your spirit would call them to that repentance today. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the gospel. Thankful for this word this morning. We pray all of it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing and respond to this word that we've heard.